Well, Merry Christmas. I'm sure that uh, many of you are excited about the holidays and all that comes with that, spending time with family, your traditions, whatever you might do. And, you know, of course, everybody's just a little bit excited about presents. You know, it's, uh, it's real easy for all of this stuff, all the decorations and the family visits and the meals to, to really overshadow what this, this time is really about. It's real easy to kind of get caught up on and things to rejoice in, things that are good things, spending time with family, all that. It's great, but it's really easy for that to take away from the true meaning of this holiday. And our culture is capitalized on our consumeristic tendencies in an attempt to make it more about warm and cozy feelings, more about family traditions than about its true meaning. Either intentionally or inadvertently, the true meaning of Christmas is lost behind bows and wrapping paper. You know, we say happy holidays. We don't even say Merry Christmas. And uh, we celebrate receiving the gift of materialism rather than the gift of life in Christ. Well, this morning, believe it or not, is a Christmas message. But it's not your typical Christmas message. It's about the gift of Christ, but it's not about the baby Jesus. It's about the gift that God gives us in his word, his faithful, reliable witness that we have of the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you know which text I'm preaching on, then this may seem strange to you. Because this morning, as I finish the Gospel of Mark, I have opted to preach on chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, which is the single biggest textual variant in the New Testament. <clears throat> Mark 16, 9 through 20 is one of the most disputed passages in all of Scripture. So, just as a forewarning, this is going to be a very odd message. It's an odd Christmas message. It's an odd exegetical sermon. It's an odd passage to deal with. It's an odd way to end this sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, which is bittersweet in and of itself. But it's necessary. Because here's the thing. We'll find any reason we can to disbelieve the Gospel. Whether we think that's the absurdity of a story of the Son of God being born of a virgin in the Holy Spirit, laying in a manger, shepherds lowing, you know, hosts of heaven singing, you know, wise men coming from afar, or in any attempt to discredit the Word of God by pointing at questionable texts. We are prone to find any reason to disbelieve the gospel. And though this text is one of the most disputed in all of Scripture, the gift, the Christmas gift that I want to give you this morning is confidence in the unfailing, consistent, trustworthy Word of God. It is reliable. It is sure. My friends, we have been given a gift. God's Word is a gift. This is God's pr Christmas present to us so that we might treasure it and then gift it to others. Okay? So yes, that's right. This is the one gift that you will ever receive at Christmas time that is okay for you to re-gift, just so long as you keep it for yourself. So the reason why I'm preaching on this passage, the main idea that I want us to walk away with this morning, is that God has given us the gift of his message. And that includes the faithful witness of Mark 16, 9-20, so that we might believe and proclaim. So if you would, turn with me there to Mark 16, 9 through 20. It's page 853, 854, and the Bible's there in the chairs. 
It says, Now when he, Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who were with, who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the, into the country. And they went back and they told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, God has given us the gift of his message so that we might believe and proclaim. And so how do we do that with this passage? How do we do that with this disputed text? Okay, so this, what I'm going to have to do is kind of go from teaching and instruction and move towards application. It's going to go from sort of a uh, just information more into preaching. And so that being the case, I want to give you my points right up front. Point number one, which is going to be the longest point, is witness the gift of the good news. Point number two is believe the gift of the good news. And point number three, proclaim the gift of the good news. So first, witness the gift of the good news. Now before I can convince you of the blessing that we have in this text, in this passage, I've got to deal with the big elephant in the room. Why does this passage appear in brackets? Right? You see it in your text, in many of your Bibles, Mark 16, 9 through 20 appears either in brackets or as a footnote. Right? You all see it? In most of the texts, right above it, there's this statement in all caps. And this statement serves as kind of a wall as a barrier, or better yet, as a tourniquet that just kind of takes the life right out of this passage. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, I'm kind of curious what what comes to your mind as you read that statement. Do you even bother reading the rest? Do you find that that passage, that whatever comes after it, it's all suspect, it's all questionable, and you just kind of leave it? You don't want to deal with it. Am I right? I think we have that tendency when we read this passage. Jim disagrees. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Or see that. Uh, You see, this passage has more textual variants than any other by far. And I mean by far. We'll see it. Now, when I say textual variants, I know that that's a big word. But what that means is with this ending, we we have a large number of Greek manuscripts and there are a number of passages or a number of manuscripts that end this passage differently, in Mark differently. Okay? 
So there's variance within the text that we have. <clears throat> now, before I address our text specifically, I want to deal generally with the reliability of Scripture. Okay? Now, just to put things into perspective, I have this slide of how the New Testament manuscripts compared to other ancient texts that people don't even bother questioning. Okay? So here you see it up here, this nice little graph, even though I already see typos across the front. It's supposed to be A.D., not B.C., on this side of zero, okay? So keep that in mind. Um, now, you're going to have to put your nerd glasses on and follow along with me. You're going to have to keep them on for quite a while, but just hang tight. It's going to make sense, okay? First of all, we've got this historic account of Caesar, right? It's a, with this, we have ten copies. You see over there on the right, ten copies. The oldest copy that we have appears 1,000 years after the original. You, does that make sense? Like, so it was written 1,000 years later. That's the first copy that we have of it. Okay? And we have 10 total. And there's variance between them. Uh, Plato's Tetralogies. We have seven copies. The first one is over 12,000 years, or 1,200 years after the original. Tacitus, his annals, we have 20 copies. The oldest manuscript we have is from the 9th century A.D., much, much later. Pliny's history, seven copies, 750 years later. Thucydides history, we have eight copies. The first one is 1,300 years after the original. All right? You see, very few copies, much time frame, much time span between the original and what we really have. But no one questions the historical reliability of these documents, even though there's variance between them, these few copies. Now, with the New Testament documents, we have well over 5,000 copies within a few hundred years of the originals. We have more than 10,000 old Latin manuscripts. We have thousands of manuscripts written in Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, or other languages of that time. In addition to that, we have over 1 million quotes of New Testament passages from the early church fathers, from their sermons or from their writings or from their lectionaries, and they agree verbatim with what we have in the Greek manuscripts. If you add all this up, what you see is that though we do not have the original copies, right? we don't have the manuscript that Mark himself penned, what we do have, is this unbelievable abundance of copies, translations, and quotations that provide overwhelming support that what we have is historic, reliable, consistent, and absolutely trustworthy. So much so that scholars from many different backgrounds, okay, this is not just Christians, this is just scholars in general who study artifacts like this, they say that between 97 and 99% of the original New Testament can be reconstructed from the manuscripts we have beyond any measure of reasonable doubt. Beyond any measure of reasonable doubt. Friends, I, I want you to understand that what we have here is an amazingly faithful copy of the Word of God so that we can know Him and His saving work through Jesus Christ. And with that, we can confidently make Him known. Okay, when Caleb preached a few weeks ago on uh, why do we believe the Bible. Now, he dealt with more with the internal witness that we receive, that we have the mind of Christ. 
This is how we know that's the word of God. But he also provided a, a long list of resources on the reliability of the Bible. Okay? So if you have questions about that, I want you to go to our blog, redeemerchurch.wordpress.com, and look up these resources. Okay? There's one that's on there, um, FF Bruce's, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? It's a short PDF. I actually put the link on there. So if you click on that title, you will get that PDF. It's worth reading. Also, I'd commend to you the ESV Study Bible article, The Reliability of Biblical manu- or Bible Manuscripts. Okay? We have, what we have is completely reliable, completely consistent. And if you saw, I mean, again, again, across so many manuscripts, we are able to, to understand and piece together what we have is accurate and faithful. We can trust in it. So that's reliability. But so why, why the variance then? Why, why are there variations? We have all these copies that are very, very consistent with one another, but there are some differences. Well, these variations are the result of three factors. First of all, there's word division. Okay? Has anyone ever seen an original, like seen a copy in, uh, of, of like a Greek manuscript of the New Testament? Anybody? Okay. You'll notice that it's all caps. There's no spaces, no uh, punctuation marks whatsoever. Okay. They had to conserve space because it was hard. They didn't have paper like we have, right? So they just wrote everything in big capital letters, everything kind of going together. And so when, when people would come later and make copies, sometimes they would divide the words incorrectly. They would, they would keep this letter that went with this word, and they would put it with this word, and that created a problem, okay? Another issue is uh, mechanical errors like typos or accidental omissions, Uh, repetition of letters, prefixes, or words as the copyist's eyes jump back and forth to the wrong place on the text being copied. Like, you guys have done this, right? You've tried to copy something by hand, and you're going through, and you've got your finger over here, and you've got your pen over here, and you're going like this all the time, and you've you've messed up, haven't you? Right? We we get that, right? Uh, We kind of understand what that's about. Now, that's not the case in in the Old Testament, because they they were like, crazy careful about their copies, okay? So there is not much textual variance in the manuscripts we have. The New Testament is different because they were trying to get them out, right? And so they're just plugging away, boom, 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 as fast as they can, you know, write on papyrus, which is crazy in itself. You know, they're, they're trying to do that. So there's a little bit more room for variance. And then the third issue, the third reason for variancy was intentional editing. Occasionally, there is intentional editing for the sake of clarity, to try to smooth it out, make it more understandable, or to try to provide harmony between it and other texts, or the third reason is for orthodoxy, to make it more obviously consistent with the apostles' teaching. Okay? Now, they did this in order for understandability. In the case of Mark 16, 9 through 20, what we have is an example of intentional editing for the sake of harmony to make it end much more like the other Gospels that we have. Okay? Now, still got your nerd glasses on? Can't take them off just yet. <clears throat> okay, we've, we've dealt with briefly, very briefly, with textual variance in historical reliability of the New Testament as a whole. Now we can zoom in on our original question. So why is 9 through 20 in brackets, all right? And the reason why we have brackets around verses 9 through 20 is because there is external 
and internal evidence to suggest that they are not original. There is outside testimony and internal grammatical issues that support the idea that Mark originally ended with verse 8. All right? So external evidence. First of all, two of the oldest and best Greek manuscripts that we have do not include verses 9 through 20. Okay? So they're some of the oldest that we have. In fact, they're the two oldest complete ones that we have, and they do not have it. All right? So if the older ones don't have it, it's pretty safe to assume that that was a later edition. Does that make sense? All right? I'm not seeing nerd glasses. You know, you, you guys, I like to see this when I talk about nerd glasses. So anyway, try to keep with me. All right? <laughs> um, in addition to that, they're, mi- they're missing in numerous early Latin Syriac, Armenian, and Georgian manuscripts. So we've got all of these early translations of the Greek into different languages, and they too are missing verses 9 through 20. Which, by the way, the fact that we have so many early translations of the New Testament argues for the importance of taking the gospel to people in their own language. I mean, God was not concerned about his message being corrupted through translation. God, the God who made it possible for the apostles to speak in foreign tongues to proclaim the gospel at Pentecost, is also the God who directs the efforts of his church to make the word of God accessible to every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. So praise God for the efforts that we have in translating the text of Scripture into languages so that people can understand, so that people can read and believe. So these early manuscripts, whether they be Greek or whether they be early translations, there's a number of them that do not have verses 9 through 20. A second piece of external evidence, and this is kind of a kicker, there's more than one longer ending of Mark. Did you know that? Okay, so we've got some of these manuscripts that end with verse 8. We've got other manuscripts that have verses 9 through 20. So you've got these two. We've got another set of manuscripts that they do include verses 9 through 20, but they all indicate that those are questionable. So they kind of have them sort of in brackets. Greek, we have Greek manuscripts where these are kind of in brackets, saying, yeah, we're... But we have them, we put them here, but we're not so sure about them. <clears throat> there are a few manuscripts we have that include verses 9 through 20, but they add additional material in verse 14. Okay? We have one Latin manuscript that, that ends with verse 8, but it adds this additional statement. And a lot of times it's in your footnotes, in your Bibles. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told, And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Well, Mark doesn't say anything remotely close to that. It doesn't even sound like Mark at all. Okay? Of course, it's in Latin, so why should it? Mark wrote in Greek. And then there are a few other manuscripts that add this additional statement into verse 8, but then they also include verses 9 through 20. Now, that is a lot of endings to sift through. Did you catch how many I said? Ends of verse 8, as 9 through 20, as 9 through 20 with a question mark, 
adds 9 through 20 with stuff in 14, right? Latin manuscript that ends in 8 but has this additional statement. And then another series that has this additional statement in Latin but also has 9 through 20. Okay? Do you see the issue? The sheer number of variations should make it suspect that, these, that this longer ending could not have been written by Mark. Is that clear? <clears throat> now, the third piece of external evidence comes from the early church. You have Origen and Clement of Alexandria. These are two well-known, prolific authors, early church fathers. They make no mention of this longer ending. And they write on Mark quite a bit. Now, this could be an argument from silence, but Jerome and the early church historian Eusebius were both aware of the longer endings that were circulating around, and they stated that this was not a part of most Greek manuscripts at the present time. So they were aware of these longer endings. They're saying, you know what? Most Greek manuscripts don't have them. Okay? It's a pretty significant piece of evidence. But in addition to all these external issues, we have internal evidence as well. Look at, look at verse 8. In verse 8, the women were the subject of the sentence. Do you see that? Did you look at it? It says, And they, the women, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. But look in verse 9. Who's the subject there? Now when he arose. Who's he? Jesus. The subject suddenly changes. And it doesn't even reintroduce Jesus with his name. It just has this pronoun, he. Okay? Second, verses, verse 9 reintroduces the time that it's the first day of the week. And what happened that he rose on the first day of the week. And then it introduces Mary Magdalene as the woman from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Now this is mentioned in Luke 8.2, but it's nowhere mentioned in Mark. But she's already been introduced three times in Mark. Right? He's already made mention of her three times already. So why introduce her now? It's like he's... He's like, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. Oh, yeah, hey, guys, this is Mary Magdalene. You know, like, I mean, we're all forgetful, but I don't think that's Mark's issue here. <clears throat> and then third, there's, there's new vocabulary. There's grammatical styles that appear. You can't see that in your text. That's where you've got to know Greek. Um, and fourth, if this longer ending is Mark's, if Mark is writing this, why doesn't he fulfill the promise that's given chapter 14, verse 28, and chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus would go before them to Galilee. You see, Mark is very intentional to tie up all the loose ends. He wants to make sure that you know that Jesus completely fulfills everything that he promised to do. And so if this is Mark's ending, and he mentions these three separate appearances, why isn't he abundantly clear that one of those happens in Galilee in order to fulfill what Jesus has said? It's a good question. It's a legitimate question. Unless, of course, he was intentional to end in verse 8 with this call to respond. Now, given all this support, and let me, trust me, there's a whole lot more. It seems best to conclude that the Gospel of Mark ends with verse 8. That's why we have this text in brackets, okay? So, 
If verses 9 through 20 are not original, then why are they in our Bibles? Right? It's a legitimate question. Okay? And the answer is this. Though they are not the inspired words of God written by the hand of Mark, they are consistent with God's inspired word and are a faithful testimony of the early church to the work of the gospel in the hearts of men and throughout the world. They are there because they are a faithful testimony of what God is doing through the church. This passage is a profound witness to the faithfulness of the spoken Christian message throughout the world. You know, we often forget that they didn't have word processors, they didn't have printers, they didn't have publishers, they didn't have printing presses in those days. In those days, if you're going to write something, you had to write on scrolls of animal skin or on papyrus. Has anybody ever seen papyrus before? Okay? It's, it's rough. Okay? I mean, picture this kind of like this. A cross between, like, corrugated cardboard, uh, dried palm leaves, and a tablet made out of woven reed. It's kind of papyrus. All wet down, smashed together and that's what you have. It's notoriously difficult to, to make, notoriously difficult to write on, right? And if it wasn't that, it was, it was parchment or vellum, this animal, this animal skin, right? It just didn't have a whole lot there. Codices, which were the early versions of books, were made by sewing these sheets of papyrus or fine animal skin called parchment together. And Mark, so when he Mark wrote, he would have written one copy. Right? And he would have sent that to the people that he wanted to send it to, which is more than likely Gentile Christians in or near Rome. Okay? So you got one copy being made on rough, brittle stuff that would fall apart easily, and that being sent off to Rome. Okay? <clears throat> and as these books began to circulate to different places, they were copied as they went. So the people in Rome would receive that. They would make some copies. They would send it on somewhere else. Those people would make copies, and there you go, and it starts making its way throughout. And, and this happened with all the other books, okay? So not all books were sent to Rome. Did you get that? So Matthew probably sent, like, his book probably was there in Jerusalem or somewhere around there. It was written to Jews. So you've got these 27 books of the New Testament. They're going to different places all over the place. Right? Working independently and then slowly circulating out. So it took time for one person to have all 27. Do you get that? If you're, in, if you're in Alexandria, right, northern Egypt, it's going to take you a while to get all of those letters. Right? But I think that this is an argument for how consistent their message was. This is a strong argument for trustworthiness. Like, how is it that all of these copies are being made and circulated, and this Mark's testimony over here, and here's Matthew's testimony over here, and here's Luke's testimony over there, and when you compare them, there's so much similarity, apart from the will of God. All right, I mean, you've all played the telephone game, right? You know what I'm talking about? We all kind of get in a line, and you start over here, and one person whispers the message into someone's ear, and that kind of that keeps whispering around until you get to the very end, and then you always kind of compare what is the message that this person has and what was, what was the original. They're never the same, right? They're completely different. Okay, imagine the telephone game amplified. Instead of one message, there's 27, and they start in different places, 
And instead of the message going from point A all the way around to point B and ending up here, these messages are crossing every which way. I mean, could you imagine how messed up that testimony would be by the time you got done with it? You, you started comparing messages. It would be a nightmare. For the fact that it to be consistent and, and trustworthy, like that the, these agree, it's just overwhelming for the trustworthiness of Scripture. I mean, you get that. Now, there's amazing consistency in the New Testament letters that we have. Now, this later edition, verses 9 through 20, appeared early in the 2nd century, so before 150 A.D., okay? This is still the testimony, really, of the time period of the apostles. They would have died by then, but this is still right around a little bit after they would have originally written their letters, And how do we know that? Well, because church history tells us so, that this was on the scene then. And so though it's not original, it is completely consistent with the other books of the New Testament that were disseminating from different places throughout the known world. And how consistent is Mark 16, verses 9 through 20 with the rest of the New Testament? Well, I have another slide for that. Okay? Again, don't take off the nerd glasses yet. We're not ready. Okay, I, I got this from James Hamilton's uh, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment, though the ones that are in italics are mine. And what you see is every verse of Mark 9, or 16, 9 through 20 there, and then verses that support, verses that corroborate, verses that basically tell us the same thing. Okay? Now, the reality is we could add a whole lot more New Testament passages to support this. But what I'm, I'm saying is this, though Mark... 16, 9 through 20 is disputed, illegitimately so. These passages over here on the right are not. They're unquestionable. They're historically reliable. They are from, they are originals, okay? And so we're not going to take time to go through these. But, again, I want you guys to. In fact, I'd encourage you while you're you're celebrating with family, sitting around the fire, drinking eggnog or whatever it is you do, Right? Get out your Bibles and, and look at this. I've put this up on our blog so you can check it out. And you can see and you can kind of compare. Oh, wait. I see why Mark 16.9 mentions that Mary had seven demons because Luke 8.2 says that as well. Oh, wait. Mark 16.10. Oh, look at all these passages that say the same thing. Okay? It is worthwhile doing. Okay? It is astonishing how alike these are. If you just read through the end of the other gospel accounts, or you read the book of Acts, or you read 1 Corinthians 15, you realize that this passage is in no way inconsistent with the messages that are found other places in the New Testament. Okay? Now, the big question about this text, I think everybody gets hung up on, is verse 18. Right? They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if, now I should point out, if, If they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Now, in this passage, the closest theological referent to this statement would be Paul being bit by the snake in verse 28, or Jesus' statement in Luke 10, 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. I think that we should understand these passages as a promise of protection and a guarantee of God's authority going forward with the proclamation of the gospel. 
Okay? This is about God and His protection of His messengers. This is not something that we want to claim for ourselves or to kind of institute in our worship services. Okay? So we don't put God to the test by handling snakes and drinking poison. That's not what it's intended for. Saying, listen, if these things come about, you need to know that God will protect you. Nothing will happen to you outside of God's sovereign plan. His authority, his power is in his message, and it goes forward. So do not fear. That's the point. Now, okay, so you can take the nerd glasses off now. All right? I'm going to try to move towards application in the time that we have remaining. This passage in no way affects the meaning of Mark. Okay? It doesn't change the way we read or understand the gospel of Mark. Nor does it change anything about Christian doctrine. Okay? Christian doctrine is in no way dependent upon Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. This is simply the faithful witness to the message and work of God in the early church. Early church fathers such as Irenaeus, Justin, and Tatian all refer to it. In fact, Tatian preaches on Mark 16, verse 15. The later church has commended its testimony. It is consistent with the New Testament according to that chart that I just showed you. Biblical scholars throughout the century have kept it in our translations. They have not taken it away because they see that it is consistent. Therefore, we do not have reason to look at this passage and disbelieve the Bible. There's no reason. Instead, we should read it as a faithful testimony of the early church to the gift of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is God's work. This is what he did to give evidence to the fact that he was active in the world. His message going forward. So listen, see, believe. That is its purpose. And though there's so much more that could be said, I hope I've given you a glimpse of the trustworthiness that there is even here in the most disputed text of the New Testament. That's why I wanted to tackle it head on. This is a faithful witness to the gift of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would see it this morning. Witness the gift of the good news. Second, don't just look at it. Don't just witness it. Don't just see it. Believe the gift of the good news. Now, belief in the gospel is not as easy as believing that Saturn has rings around it. You ever notice that? You know, there are certain facts that the human mind will accept at face value even though they can't see it. The gospel is a different story. Believing is more than just hearing, kind of giving an intellectual tip of the hat towards the gospel message, or sort of following along as he went. And how do I know that? Well, because of I see unbelief everywhere in this record of Jesus' disciples. We've seen it over and over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. They failed to believe. Okay? I mean, I've got a large number of passages right here that just indicate it. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's five in chapter 14 alone. Okay? So, 
even though they lived and ministered with Jesus for three years, even though they'd heard him teach, even though they'd seen him perform miracles, even though they'd heard him predict his own death and resurrection, even with all of that, even even with all of these gospel accounts and acts giving instances, even after Jesus' resurrection and his appearances to them, the disciples still struggled to believe. You ever notice that? We see it here in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 14 as well. In verses 9 through 11, we see their unbelief after Jesus' first appearance to Mary Magdalene. It says, now when he rose, very early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and they had, seen, and had been seen by her, they would not believe. John 20 tells us of how Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Even Peter and John had gone and seen the empty tomb. And yet Matthew 28, 17, Luke 24, 22 through 27, and John 20, verse 20 and verse 25 agree with Mark 16, 11, that the disciples did not believe it. In verses 12 through 13, we are given the early church witness of Jesus appearing to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. It says, after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and they told the rest, but they did not believe them. Again, the early church witness of Mark 16 is consistent with Luke's account in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. And we're not going to read it all, but just one verse alone is sufficient. Luke 24, 25 says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. So not only does it go beyond Jesus' own predictions of his death and resurrection, that they failed to believe, that they failed to see, and and it And they still struggled with unbelief. But he also says that the Old Testament prophets themselves pointed to Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. But they didn't get it. And then in verse 14, the church gives us an account of a third appearance to the disciples. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Luke tells us the story this way in Luke 24, verses 36 through 49, and I actually have it up here. It says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. And it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, numerous times prior to Jesus' death, he had to rebuke the disciples for their unbelief. We've seen this so many times in the Gospel of Mark. And now, even after they'd heard him teach, even after they'd seen him perform miracles, even after they caught a glimpse of his heavenly glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, even after they heard him predict his resurrection five times, even after Peter and John had seen the empty tomb, even though they heard the report from Mary and the two others that they had seen the resurrected Jesus, and now, even after Jesus stood before them and rebuked them, they still struggled to believe. Oh, how our hearts are prone to disbelieve the gospel. Even after all that, the disciples still struggled to believe. So then if faith is more than this intellectual head nod, just kind of recognizing, yeah, I believe that to be true, or it's more than this blind leap of faith, how do we believe the gift of the good news? How do we? Well, what Luke tells us in this passage is similar to what we've heard throughout the Gospel of Mark. And rather than trying to pick it out of there, I just want to show you in this passage here. This is the means that God has given us to lead us to faith in Christ. It's it's the promise and fulfillment of Scripture, the words of Jesus, the faithful testimony and witness of the church, and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, the promise is, and fulfillment of Scripture. You see it there in Luke 24:44. It says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Or in Luke 24:46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. I mean, how many times have we seen Mark point us to Old Testament passages? Say, look, see, Jesus fulfilled all of this. Jesus did this. This is about him. The New Testament is filled with thousands of passages, Old Testament passages, that Jesus fulfills. God gave us the scriptures so that we might believe. Second, they're the words of Jesus. See there again in verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So many times we've seen Jesus tell us things that would happen beforehand so that when they did happen, we might believe. John 13, 19. That's the whole point. Hey, Peter, guess what? You're going to deny me three times so that when Peter denies him three times, he might believe. Hey, guess what? One of you will betray me so that when Judas Iscariot did betray them, they would all recognize and they would believe. Hey, guys, guess what? I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Telling you that beforehand so that when it does, you will believe. And it happened. Every word of Jesus has proven true. Everything happened just as he said it would. Third, there's the faithful witness of the church. There in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. This is exactly what we have in Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. 
the faithful proclamation of those Jesus had called to be his eyewitnesses of everything that had happened. This is their testimony before God of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the effect that it had on the hearts of men and spread throughout the world. This is a message that they gave their lives for. And then fourth, there's the illuminating work of the Spirit. The only way that we can truly believe is for Christ to open our minds to understand the Scriptures. We need to we need the, the promised one from the Father, the power from on high, the Holy Spirit, if we are to truly see and believe. This is the gift that God gave his disciples. This is the gift that God gave the early church. And this is the gift that God gives us to you and me so that we might see and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what they had. This is all we need. God gave us his message by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit to faithful witnesses whom he called to go and proclaim that they might call other people to repent and believe the gospel. Friends, we've all sinned. We've all failed to believe and follow God. We've all tried to live our lives without him as if this is my world and I'm God. But even though we have been faithless, God is faithful. He has not failed. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, life that you and I, we can't live. A life of perfect obedience to God. And Christ gave up that life by dying on the cross for sin in order to sacrifice himself. Right? To pay the penalty that our sins deserve. He rose again on the third day to prove every word that he said was true. That he was the son of God. That God's wrath against sin has been satisfied. That the power and penalty of sin has been overturned. Death cannot defeat him. And that one day all of those who would repent and believe in him would be reconciled eternally to God. Those that failed to do so, those who did not believe, would be condemned. And so Mark 16, 9-20 calls us to witness the gift of the good news. But not just witness so that we can stand and kind of say, oh yeah, I, 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 can, I can get that. I, I, I can... I can understand what you mean, Chet. It's a call to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. And third, with that reception of the good news of Jesus, we're called to proclaim the gift of the good news of Jesus. Those who see and believe, those who heed the rebuke of Christ, those who repent and are saved, those who listen to the faithful testimony of the church, those who have received the promised Holy Spirit are given this command in verses 15 through 18. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So inseparably connected with this call to believe the gospel is the call to proclaim the gospel. 
Those who God saves, he calls to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now, what he doesn't mean here is to go and preach to trees. Okay? When he says all creation, he says you do it to everyone, Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. This is personal. We know that from verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. If a tree can't believe and be baptized... We're not to preach to that. Now, this doesn't mean that baptism is necessary for salvation. Condemnation falls on those who do not believe, not those who were not baptized. But baptism is given as a command to all who would believe. If you believe, then you are to obey Christ by being baptized. You are to respond in baptism. You are to make this public declaration of new life in Christ. You are to let the world know it. I am identified with him. And this baptism is a significant symbol where I, I identify myself. I take on his name. I am buried with him. I'm submerged with him in baptism. I'm raised to walk in the newness of life. This is significant. This is essential. As we proclaim the gospel, we are to call people to respond. The symbol of that response is baptism. This is Christ's intention. This was Christ's decision. This is the way that he designed it. This is his call to obey his commands. So if you're here and you profess to believe in Jesus but you have not responded in obedience through baptism, then you are sinning. If you haven't been baptized, then you're living in disobedience to God. You're living in disobedience to Christ. He calls you to make your faith known to the world, known in the way that he has prescribed, not in the way that you would feel good about. It's his way, not ours. So don't continue to live under the rebuke of Christ. Respond in obedience. Believe by responding in faith to his commands. Okay, so I put it off just about as long as I can. Right? Verses 17 through 18. Everybody gets hung up on verses 17 through 18. Okay, I kind of tip the hat towards it. Let me deal with it very briefly. Obviously, this passage speaks of miraculous sign gifts that accompany those who believe. Now, that word is very important. It accompanies those who believe. Is it innate within the believer? No. Is it necessary for salvation? No. Is it necessary to prove that you're like a real Christian versus a kind of Christian? Absolutely not. It says these signs will accompany those who believe. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that these are innate within the believers. It doesn't mean that you have to have these in order to truly believe, nor does it mean that you should put God to the test by claiming them for yourselves or by handling snakes and drinking poison in our worship gatherings. We are to not put God to the test. There's only one thing that we're really to put God to the test on, you know what it is? Give. Hey, give your money and see if God doesn't open the storehouse of heaven. That's the only thing you're allowed to test him on. But you don't pick up snakes. You don't claim gift of tongues to do that. 
No, the key to understanding this passage is found in verse 20. Look at it. It says, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So who's doing the work? God is. Why is he doing it? To bring validation to the truth that they are proclaiming. It's going with them. It's not theirs. They can't claim it for themselves. It's just something that God does at different times, at different places, in order to prove to unbelievers, not believers, that this is the power of the gospel. This is why you need to believe. Not so that you put your faith in miracles. Not so that you take these and say, look, I have the gift of this. Exalt me. Make much of me. It has nothing to do with that. But everything to do with God displaying the work of his power, confirming his message of the gospel as they went forward. This was meant to show that this was the work of God, not the work of man. This is not something that man can do. This is something that God does. God changes hearts through the message of the gospel. This is meant to bring validation or power to the message of the gospel. It's meant to serve as a promise that God is with them, that his authority goes forth as they proclaim that they have nothing to fear because nothing can happen to them outside of God's sovereign will. It's just like we saw in Luke 10, 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Guys, if God is going with you, if God's purpose is for you to proclaim that you have nothing to fear, nothing can happen to you apart from God's will. This passage is not about you proving your faith. This passage is not about the continuation or the necessity of sign gifts. It is about trusting that God's purposes will not fail, even when there are cultural barriers like tongues, languages, even when there is illness, even when evil spirits have possessed those, even when false teachers and persecutors stand in the way of the gospel, God's purposes will go forth. And that's exactly what we see confirmed in verses 19 through 20. Exactly. So then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoke to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Our faith does not rest on miracles, but on the centrality the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose. Jesus ascended. Jesus is reigning in heavenly glory. And one day we will see it. But until then, we are to see, believe, and proclaim. We are to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit with absolute confidence in the promise and the authority of God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to all creation. Nothing can stop us. Nothing should stop us. So, as you go home and you enjoy this time with family, doing whatever your traditions are, sitting around the fire drinking eggnog, singing Christmas carols around the tree, whatever that might be, Pray that you take this gift with you. 
God has given us the gift of his message through the faithful witnesses, even of Mark 16, 9 through 20, so that we might believe and proclaim. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this morning, even as we are faced with a difficult text, that we would be able to see that these are words that describe your activity in the life of the church, that you are active, that you are participating, that Jesus is risen, he appeared, he ascended, he rose, and he has called us to see and to believe and proclaim. God, I pray that we would see the trustworthiness and faithfulness of your word. I pray that we, we would love it, that we would see life in it. God, I, I pray that we wouldn't get distracted or hung up or just prone. We're so prone to disbelief. And so, Lord, we confess. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And I pray for those who are here and not trusting in you, that they would see, their questions would be answered, and they would respond by faith in Christ. It's in his name I pray.